ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, tonight a look at ancient Greece on film from movies about Spartans and Trojans to Alexander the Great. The stories of ancient Greece began appearing on the big screen as early as 1911. They continue today. I wonder if you have a favourite film or maybe it's a TV show set in ancient Greece or you want to tell us about a modern update of an ancient Greek story. Now, late last year, we had Dr Craig Barker from the Chow Chak Wing Museum at the University of Sydney coming to talk about ancient Egypt on film. Tonight, it's ancient Greece's turn. Hello, Craig. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Now, um, the Renaissance prompted a lot of interest in classical statues and stories, but we tend to think of that as being more focused on Roman stories. And of course, the Renaissance began in Italy. So when did Europeans really start to get excited about the idea of ancient Greece? Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, obviously the stories of Greek mythology and so on had survived through literary sources uh, into you know uh, medieval and Renaissance mm-hmm. European history. But Greece itself was largely inaccessible. It had been under Ottoman control since Constantinople fell in fourteen uh, in the fourteen fifties, um, and obviously uh, Italy became the main tourist destination as part of uh, what became known eventually as the Grand Tour, that travel accessing culture and so on. So if you wanted to go sit on a, an ancient ruin and sketch it, you had to do that in Rome, You'd not do it Greece. in Rome or Pompeii. Yeah. So Greece really only begins to become accessible to English, French and German travellers in the late 1700s. Um, and what you kind of get is this sort of interesting approach where suddenly everyone had been viewing classical antiquities through the through the lens of Rome, and then suddenly it's like, well, what's Greece got to offer? So you kind of have uh, an, an, an interesting period where a couple of uh, British artists, uh, Stuart and Rivette, publish a series of books of their drawings of Athens, as it was looking at the time. So actually really quite important documents, but with these classical monuments in the rear. And then, of course, then you have Lord Elgin, who takes uh, fragments from the... Steals, steals yes. yes. loots, um, uh, items from the, uh, from the Parthenon, which, of course, would end up eventually in the British Museum and the resulting controversies that we see discussed today. But what that enabled was for Europeans to actually see Greek antiquities for the first time. So suddenly they could visualise all of these stories that they knew with antiquities that matched. And, of course, at that point in time, what you get is one of the leading celebrity causes right across Europe in the early 1800s is Greece must have independence, the birthplace of democracy at the very point that a whole lot of European liberal democracies are being founded or formed, sees we owe Greece this debt of honour, we must help Greece become independent. And it was kind of like a, I mean, it's a celebrity crusade. Every man and his dog was sort of heading to Greece or or sticking up for the Greeks, weren't they? Yes, and of course the most famous is Lord Byron, who, you know, not only put money and, and his celebrity behind the cause, but actually went to fight and ended up dying in Greece of malaria um, during the War of Independence. So um, you have this sort of really interesting, almost like the birth of the celebrity cause at the same time. Um, And uh, when you see sort of uh, uh, people like George Clooney and Stephen Fry today suggesting that maybe the British Museum should consider the return of the uh, Parthenon marbles, 
um, there's a really interesting continuity right throughout mm. that. <laughs> the celebrity cause continues, yeah. So when we sort of start looking at, at movies and TV um, through the last, well, I guess, um, 120 years or so, what are the main themes that are being covered when ancient Greece is portrayed on screen? Yeah, it's interesting. And it often depends upon who's making the movie, obviously. And like we talked about with Egypt, um, it's a chance for filmmakers and scriptwriters and creatives to reflect on contemporary society issues, but by projecting it onto this idea of a, a classical past that we may not all know the nuanced details of the myth, but we know who Achilles is. We know who Athena is. And we've got a vague idea of who uh, Heracles or Hercules is. Um, and so, yeah, there's enough there for us to work with. So there's a couple of sort of common themes. The Trojan War is one of them. Hollywood loves the Trojan War and keeps on going back to it time and time again. Uh, the other one is uh, really interesting, the reflection of Athenian democracy that you'll see, particularly in a number of the movies coming out in the 1950s in America. And it's often reflecting Cold War politics. And so you see this, you see this in academic literature as well, but uh, uh, at, at sort of the the, the public-facing end of uh, a lot of these discussions, this idea of sort of Athens' birthplace of democracy representing modern contemporary, you know, the America of the, uh, of the Kennedy era, for example, um, contrasting with Sparta, with its very austere, very militaristic, suddenly it's perfect for Khrushchev's Cold War Russia. And so you can see a lot of metaphors wow. being worked into this as well. Um, likewise, in some of the Roman... Uh, depictions as well, but but Greece is, is is there, and then I think the other key thing is the universality of those myths. Um, uh, and again, as we'll talk about, it's never accurate, um, but all of those figures are always there. Yeah, uh, Dr. Craig Barker is here now. If you want to talk about a film that's set in ancient Greece, tells an ancient Greek story, uh, I'd love for you to join us tonight. One three hundred eight hundred triple two, the SMS zero four six seven nine double two seven zero two. Now, let's talk about the Trojan War. Um, so there was a movie made about that in 1911, and there have been a few more, haven't there? There have been, yes. Uh, to the best of our knowledge, and the, the, uh, this 1911 silent film hasn't survived, unfortunately, but to the best of everyone's uh, film historian's knowledge, it's the first attempt to, to capture that story in an Italian production. Remember, Italian movies before World War I were much bigger than you know, Hollywood to have been founded. So... Uh, um, a lot of innovation in cinemas coming through Italy. But again, uh, throughout the silent era, aspects of the story are referred to. And then you kind of get a bit of a pickup again in both French cinema and then in Hollywood in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, movie called Helen of Troy was a, a box office hit in 1958. Um, and again, because uh, it's such a long story, both the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Homeric epics, are kind of interesting because... Uh, again, fitting in with that idea of the universality of mythology, everyone's kind of got a version of, you know, in our heads, we kind of know something, Trojan horse, something like that. So finding a way that modern uh, filmmakers and scriptwriters can can link that together within, you know, an hour and a half or two hours is, is often quite difficult. There's a famous story, probably apocryphal, but a famous story that's usually attributed to one of the Warner Brothers, when you know someone pitched the idea of let's make a movie of the Trojan War, saying big, big problem, too many characters, and they've too many unpronounceable names for Middle America. <laughs> now, whether it's true or not, there's a there's a kernel of truth in it that you know 
the Iliad is incredibly complex if anyone's ever tried mm. to read it. So how does a modern filmmaker work it in? Well, normally they've gone for the love story. Yeah. Well, we all like a love story. We all love a love story. So of the the wars about Troy, I mean the films about Troy, which one do you like the best? I think, look, the 2004 Troy uh, directed by Wolfgang Peterson and written by David uh, Benioff who would later create uh, the Game of Thrones TV series Um, and uh, starring Brad Pitt and Australia's Eric Banner. It's an interesting take. Um, It's flawed, as they all are. It's very, very flawed, but it's an interesting take because what Peterson has done in this, and it's a very very 21st century telling of the tale, is taken out all of the gods. Uh Because in the story, the gods are appearing on the battlefield. We are, you know, the affairs of men are being dictated by the gods and the entire war is... You know, God's playing us as pieces on a on a chessboard. So the gods are stripped out. So what do you do? Well, you know, the love story's there. Helen's there, the abduction of Helen. But it's not quite presented in the same way. And again, very 21st century view, it's largely seen as control of trade routes and taxation. So it's actually reflecting a lot of sort of contemporary geopolitics. Remember, yeah. it came out only a year after the US invasion or US-led invasion of Iraq. Um, and so, you know, conflicts there. There's some interesting scenes in the movie. Um, we can talk about historical accuracy later on if we want to. But, you know, for me, one of the key scenes is that there's actually a, a camera, uh, uh, you know, panning across the beach um, as the Greek ships land on the beach ready for the uh, uh, the invasion of Troy. And it's almost an identical shot-for-shot remake of a similar scene in The Longest Day, the 1961 World War II movie about the about D-Day. So it's an amphibious invasion by a powerful force. Um, you know, again, there's all these really interesting interplays taking place. So uh, what was the actual Trojan War about? Because it, I understand it's not as well documented as a lot of other wars and, and the site's not really accessible or, or well-known where it is. And, I mean, obviously the story we have is that the gods were part of it, which they probably weren't. Yeah. So, what I mean, what do we know about what actually Look, if we're it? talking about creative writers manipulating stories to fit yeah. what their audience wants to hear then let's go back to where it all yeah, begins, right. so which is Homer. Is yeah. So whether yeah, so whether Homer was an actual person or whether Homer is a, a, a you know a, a, a development of a, a longer tradition of epic oral myth telling, actually doesn't really matter. I mean, it might have been a marketing guy. Well, it's, in a sense, it was because the audience was there to receive it. And what we do know, and again, if anyone's ever tried to read the Iliad, there are pages and pages and pages where he lists uh, cities that send uh, ships or send soldiers or so on. And the reason they're all in there is, of course, as the travelling storytellers are are going around village to village and getting the community together to hear this story, whether they're involved in the actual war or not, irrelevant, you're you're adding in the local flavour as well. So at whatever point in time it gets written down, it's all embellished. So what you've got is sort of this interesting recollection of a 12th century BC conflict, mm. a 13th century BC conflict, eventually being written down some point in probably the 7th century BC with all of this interplay in the middle and all of these add-ons in the middle as well. So, yeah, it was written for an audience in the same way a Hollywood 
production is. Um, but a lot of it was, I think, you know, the real conflict undoubtedly was about a standoff of power, you know, who mm. controls the Aegean, um, you know, whether Helen existed, whether the story of her beauty being such that she launched a thousand ships and so on and so on is actually probably irrelevant to the point. <laughs> but it's a great story. We love it. And we keep on coming back to it. Now, here's a bit of uh, Troy from 2004 starring Brad Pitt and Eric Banner. I thought it was you I was fighting yesterday. And I wish it had been you. But I gave the dead boy the honour he deserved. You gave him the honour of your sword. You won't have eyes tonight. You won't have ears or a tongue. You will wander the underworld blind, deaf and dumb and all the dead will know. This is Hector, the fool who thought he killed Achilles. You're on Nightlife with Suzanne Hill. I've got Dr Craig Barker here, Head of Public Engagement at the Chow Chak Wing Museum at the University of Sydney. He's an archaeologist. We're talking about ancient Greek, uh, ancient Greece as it's represented in modern film and TV. Now, Ulysses, of course, is the, the story that Homer wrote after the Trojan War, and it's this very long journey to get home to the island of Ithaca. And that story, too, has had a few tellings on screen. Yes, yes. And looks a similar issue that, um, you know, the story of Odysseus getting home uh, is a 10-year story, uh, just as the Iliad, the story of the Trojan War, was 10 years. So he's away from home for 20 years. Um, You know, how do you tell that in a two-hour film? Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, again, so then it becomes selective. Um, there's been a number of interesting sort of mini series or it's kind of interesting. I think both of these would be perfect for uh, long form television and particularly in the era of streaming services mm. as we now are. So it'd be interesting to sort of see in the next decade whether or not someone. You're after a kind of Netflix uh, I think you could, series. You could kind of, of sort of see that Game of Thrones yeah. style thing. Um, yeah, the budget would need to be massive, but also in an era of CGI you could get around uh, telling a lot of those stories. It was Mm. very, very difficult for early filmmakers. And we'll talk about, for example, the way Ray Harryhausen uh, used clay animation later on. Um, But there was a production uh, in 1955 starring Anthony Quinn uh, called Ulysses, which is probably the most successful attempt in Hollywood to, you know, take all this sort of rambling story and to bring it all together. Um, but, yeah, it's very much seen as the hero's journey. And, again, from a 21st century perspective, we're seeing a lot of contemporary uh, writers who are bringing a feminist perspective to the story or are challenging some of that more traditional masculine notion of, you know, the brave hero. I mean, let's face it, Odysseus was was a... What's an appropriate word? He was... Uh, Difficult. Um, <laughs> he wasn't a pleasant man. Um, none of them were. And so, you know, this, also this idea of challenging what a hero is. Um, and in an era of, of, of superhero films too, you know, can we bring a bit of humanity back into the idea of what a hero actually is? Okay, so here's some of Ulysses from 1955, which actually stars Kirk Douglas as Ulysses. Oh, that's, yes. Go ahead, fill the sea with blind stone. Throw another... When your father asks who took your eye, tell him it was Ulysses. Ulysses, destroyer of cities, sack of Troy, son of Laertes, and king of Ithaca. 
Now, Craig, as I was doing some of this, this research and having a listen, just in the back of my mind, I was thinking, I'm sure I know a song about Ulysses from some kind of cartoon show. And I looked it up and I did find this Japanese uh, anime series from 1981. Are you familiar with it? I'm, I'm aware of it, but I've never seen uh, it. I found the song because it had been going around in my head. And so, I mean, if anything is a modern uh, <laughs> interpretation, this is because Ulysses is in the year, I think, uh, 3031 or something like this. And he's, yeah, he's um, traveling the universe, um, having a look at what's going on with his crew frozen until he finds the kingdom of Hades. And, but it's all spaceships. Yeah. But there's there's you know ancient Greek structures on these planets out in out in outer space. And of course, the interesting thing about Ulysses and that that concept of the hero's journey is the way that other creative artists have been able to uh, work that into their own their own output. So, of course, most famously is James Joyce's novel Ulysses. Mm. Um, but instead of a ten year journey, of course, it's set in one day. Um, but the journey around Dublin and that. Uh, and it, it, yeah, the, the creation of the postmodernist no, novel, but uh, the way that Joyce is able to replace a lot of the monsters and the characters that that the ancient Odysseus meets with modern references to what's mm. happening in Dublin. But you also see it in uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, um, the Coen Brothers film as well. So you know the the idea of the journey or someone taking on journey and facing those challenges has been returned to time and time again, and not just in film, in, mm. in a whole range of other so, art forms. Oh, Brother, Where Art Thou? I mean, I've certainly heard that, but how do we know that that is a reference to, to yeah, Ulysses? Yeah, it's interesting, because, and, and don't forget Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space mm. Odyssey is the other big one, but uh, in terms of the Coen brothers, I think that they were also pulling our leg a little bit with it, but it's uh, referencing an earlier 1940s film by Preston Sturgis, the name of which I forget, one of our listeners may know, um, which in itself, oh, it's Sullivan's Travels, that's it, yes, which in itself, that that 1940s film was uh, a, a metaphor for aspects of the, the journey. I think the key thing um, with an old brother, where aren't they, was that, that idea of uh, the way that the the way that the three of them actually move around various parts of the southern states of, uh, of America. Um, and again, a lot of the monsters and mythological references that are being replaced. I'm always reminded of the, the scene where they're baptised uh, in the river, I think is meant to be sort of referencing the circumyth or something like that. It's, some of our listeners may know better than I do. But, uh, yeah, I think what you may have had is the Coen brothers had the, the nudge of the, the kernel of the idea, yeah. but then have gone off and told their own story as well. Yeah, uh, if you've got, uh, well, some uh, ancient Greece on film or on TV or some of those stories that you would want to tell us about, what's your favourite film when it comes to ancient Greece and its stories? Uh, give me a call, one three hundred eight hundred triple two. the SMS 0467 922 Okay, so we've got um, the, the Odyssey, we've got Ulysses, we've got the Trojan War and the Spartans, I mean, these guys are sort of ripe for storytelling, aren't they? They are. And again, this is an interesting case where, because we don't know a great deal about the ancient Spartans, they're wonderful for us to be able to project ourselves onto them. But this is where it gets really interesting because um, what you'll find is then the mythologize, the modern mythologizing of Spartans has some serious 
modern political implications mm. as well. We can see that with the uh, the film 300 and I think the way that in certain countries the far right political movements have, have leapt onto the concept of, of Sparta and, you know, the Spartan so, um, way of life is something we should aspire to. So tell me, I, I hadn't actually heard of these films, um, The 300 and 300 Rise of the Empire. So t- yeah. tell us a bit about them. So I guess uh, the, well, actually, before we get to that, very quickly, the sort of the first Hollywood bite of the Spartan story was back in the 1960s with a movie called The 300 Spartans. And again, it was very much that idea, you know, the height of the Cold War, Cuban Missile Crisis time, um, uh, all of the Athenians were played by British actors, including um, uh, uh, oh, uh, Ralph Richardson. Sorry, I had a mental mm-hmm. block there for a second. And whereas all the Spartans were played by Americans and action heroes, um, but it was a it was a relatively faithful. It's it's quite a spectacular movie. It's CinemaScope, but it's a relatively boring take on the Battle of Thermopylae. Um, largely financed by the Greek government, by the way, and filmed in Greece, um, but. In the 21st century, 300, and then it's uh, which came out in 2006, and then its sequel, uh, 300: Rise of an Empire, which came out in 2014. These are epic storytelling of uh, the Battle of Thermopylae in the first film, and the Battle of Salamis in the second one, but based on graphic novels that have been produced in the 1990s by Frank Miller. Now, people who are aware of Frank Miller's works will be you're conscious of how bloodthirsty mm-hmm. the graphic novels can be. Um, the Hollywood filmmaker who made the first one and who scripted the second one is Zack Snyder, who, of course, has gone on to do all sorts of things within the DC comic universe. Um, so it's a very cartoon and very stylized film. And so it's fascinating to watch. It's fun to watch, but it's a graphic novel come to life. And when we say graphic, it's very graphic. It's very violent. Um, and I think that one of the byproducts of it, and it was a massive box office success, I still get school kids. It's, only, it's almost 20 years since it's come out, but I still get school kids to come and visit us at the museum whose frame of reference is this film. So its cultural legacy is probably bigger than anything else we're going to talk about tonight. And, of course, what it presents is a lot of the tropes of Spartan history, this idea of, you know, um, uh, come back holding your shield or come back on your shield, i.e. die with honour. And so, you know, remembering how much of the historical Sparta is actually biased propaganda written by the enemies of Sparta, the Athenians and so on. So all that stuff about leaving the weak babies out to die, you're saying not true? Oh, no, no, it's it's likely it's true. But bear in mind that probably all the Greek city-states were doing some practice of infanticide for anyone who wasn't regarded. And what we've gotten from the historical record is this very uh, one-sided idea of what Spartan society is. And clearly it was far more complex than that. Again, we've got a vase on display in our museum, which is very fine, black figure, um, you know, they're producing high quality art. It's not just bang bang military, military, military. Um, but what you've got is is sort of this development of the concept of you know the die for a cause, you know uh, strength. Um, remembering the the chess of uh, Gerald Butler and all of the actors. You know they went through boot camp for training, but that was all CGI'd. You know, no man <laughs> looks like that. Um, but within the cartoon version, and of course within an era CGI, you can make you can make any actor look like 
you know, this, this uh, Spartan warrior. And so, of course, it's fed into this more modern mythology that we're seeing increasingly um, co-opted by particularly right-wing political mm. parties or right-wing uh, political movements of we need to... Uh, uh, to to replicate that idea, and that's probably not what the real spider um, was. Is there a reason I'm getting the flashback of Vladimir Putin bare chested on his horse? There's a very yeah. good reason for that, and unfortunately, today is not a good day to, no. to contemplate that. But you, know, you just get an idea of of how that image could be so easily manipulated. Mm. Uh, let's hear a little bit of the uh, the film. So this is from uh, Three Hundred. Zeus stabs the sky with thunderbolts and batters the Persian ships with hurricane wind. Glorious. Only one among us keeps his Spartan reserve. Only he. Only our king. I've got a couple of questions coming in. Um, now, the first is, uh, have you listened to the musical being written about ancient Greece epic? I don't have much more information than that. Does no, that ring no, a bell? I'm not aware of this. Yeah. No, that's one to look yeah, up afterwards. Yes. Uh, now, Veronica says, what do you think of Women of Troy starring Irene Pappas? Yes, uh, really, really interesting take. Um, and we might hit upon some of the uh, ancient, dramas, ancient tragedies that have survived that have been filmed as well. So that's one of them. There's also a version of the Trojan Women that came out in 1971 uh, starring Catherine Hepburn. Um, So there's some really interesting modern takes of some of those ancient dramas, obviously within a theatrical context, but every now and then there's been a cinematic version. Um, And, of course, Irene Pappas is just amazing. Uh, Now, also uh, someone saying the two Greek stories for me are written by Madeline Miller, The Song of Achilles and Circe. Yes. Is that how you say it? Yeah. So so, um, those novels fit into a really interesting development that's kind of taken place over the last 20 or so years. And there's a whole lot of uh, contemporary fiction writers, um, Pat Barker, who's just recently completed her um, her uh, Trojan trilogy as well, um, Silence of the Girls and Women of Troy. Uh, Natalie Haynes, who's a, a remarkable classicist but also a stand-up comedian, um, has written a novel called A Thousand Ships, so we know who that's about. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, Madeline Miller's books are probably the, the two most uh, famous. Uh, Fran Rosso's uh, Oreo, uh, Margaret Atwood's book as well um, on uh, Penelope, uh, the wife of Odysseus. So what you've got is a number of um, contemporary writers, um, and you'll notice that they're all women, mm-hmm. uh, unravelling one aspect of the myth. They're not attempting to tell retell the entire story. They're often choosing one small section, and this is what uh, uh, Miller does incredibly well, one small section of a much larger myth, and just bring a slightly different perspective on it. So there's really, really interesting pieces that come out. I agree, Madeline Miller's books are probably the best example, but there's a number of them. Mm. Uh, on this list, though, you've also got the Percy Jackson books, which I know are written by uh, a male, but um, they are, I mean, my son has ripped through all of these Percy Jackson books, and yes. we've just seen the, the series on Netflix, yes. I think. Yes. Maybe not, yeah. which is um, the story of the half-boy, um, half-god. So um, that's another, another telling of it. Okay, so Alexander the Great, he's probably... 
I mean, there's a lot of famous Greeks, obviously, in, in history. But if you're looking for a, a single subject for a movie or a TV show, then Alexander is probably your guy. How many representations have there been of, of his well, story? quite a few. And, of course, there's one that's just uh, literally appeared on Netflix only in the last week. So I've not even had a chance to see the, the brand new one. Um, it's had quite a fair bit of discussion and controversy uh, as well. But um, a lot of these... Modern 21st century tellings have often created controversy. Alexander, you always have um, um, discussions as to whether he was Greek or whether he was Macedonian. So that's mm-hmm. that's one modern geopolitical meaning that's often uh, reflected on it. But the other thing that you often see in the telling is references to homosexuality. Oh, yes. And I've seen the first episode and this certainly comes you have, up. Okay, yes. yes. So um, interestingly, you know, we have Achilles in Troy, played by Brad Pitt, um, who is undoubtedly, you know, has a a male lover in the Homeric epic, but is presented uh, very much as the Brad Pitt that we know and love in the Hollywood film version of it. And similar with Alexander, Oliver Stone's production raised quite a lot of controversy at the time, particularly within modern Greece. Uh, The worry about, you know, presenting one of our heroes as, as... homosexual, which mm. is a, a, a ridiculous conversation to have anyway, but really interesting, just those levels of homophobia that have been added. But yeah, Alexander, great story, you know, uh, conquering the world, dead by 33, good chance to cast a young, good looking actor, off you go. <laughs> um, and so it's kind of interesting, it actually took a while for Hollywood to get it. But in 1956, uh, a Cinemascope Technicolor 1956, you know, Epic historical drama starring Richard Burton, just about to become a massive star. Um, and it's actually, a, I quite like it. I'm a big fan of Richard Burton's work yeah. anyway, but I quite like this film. But it's so boring. Oh, really? It's very slow. It's very slow moving. Even, you know, obviously by the standards of viewing a 1950s mm, film. Mm. But you look at, a lot of, look at a lot of the contemporary historical dramas, um, you know, Ben-Hur and so on. They're much more fun to watch, and this one really drags, unfortunately. Um, and then again, he's not really touched by Hollywood until 2004 when Oliver Stone makes his production, Alexander, famously starring Colin Farrell as, uh, as Alexander um, and uh, Angelina Jolie as his mother. And um, it's an interesting film, again, incredibly flawed, um, Oliver Stone worked very, very closely with the Oxford historian Robin Lane Fox, who is the big name in this period of historical research. Uh, Famously, uh, Fox um, turned down a consultancy fee in order to be an extra in the reenactment of the Battle of Isis, um, because as he said, it would be the only chance he would yeah. ever get to fight in a, in a phalanx formation, uh, which proves that academics, you know, Oxford yeah. Dons, very smart people, not good with money. Uh, <laughs> Maybe just very passionate about their subjects. <laughs> but I mean, the movie itself, uh, is, again, very long. Um I haven't seen it in quite some time. I'd be interested to, to, you know, again, it's now 20 years down the tracks to see how it stands up. Um, at the time, famously got a review in one of the American newspapers saying that Alexandra is a movie with many highlights. Unfortunately, they're all in Colin Farrell's hair. Oh, dear. So what do you think of it? I like it, but it's problematic. Oh, problematic. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's not... There's a great Alexander movie to be made, and that wasn't it. 
So still out there. I think it's still out still, there. I, still I think, I think some filmmaker could perhaps do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us about Agora from 2009. Yeah, now this is actually a really, really interesting film. And I think if, uh, you know, if, if anyone does uh, listen, listen in tonight and says, oh, I must go and watch something, this would be the one I'd recommend. And it's the story of uh, Rachel Rice playing the, the character of Hypatia, who was uh, in Alexandria, the, um, the, the Greek city in Egypt, um, and one of the great figures of, uh, of uh, the development of mathematics in, um, uh, in ancient culture. Really interesting take. It's a Spanish movie, mm. but in English to try and capture a, a larger audience. Um, and I think uh, really nicely encapsulates. We haven't talked too much about historical accuracy, but it's, it's not too bad at all compared to some of them. Um, Troy, uh, that we talked about before, really... Um, messes chronologically with a mm. lot of the artwork and so on. Uh, one of my favourite scenes, and you know, the whole bunch of us archaeologists from Sydney University went to actually see it at the movies when it came, and we all burst into laughter at one scene <laughs> in particular, well, quite a few scenes, but one in particular where the great Brian Cox, you know, we know from Succession, that plays Agamemnon, and there's a scene where he walks in lovingly cradling you know, this valuable ancient Greek vase. The vase itself is a red figure vase, which would have been made 700 years after the Trojan War uh, took place. Well, only uh, an archaeologist would have picked that up. I know, I know. It's, 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 it's a nice joke, but we like it. <laughs> uh, you're on Nightlife, Dr. Craig Barker, archaeologist, is here. If you've got any, uh, well, favourite films set in ancient Greece, I would love you to share it with us. one three hundred eight hundred triple two. the SMS 0467 Now, Ray Harryhausen has made a, a number of films with ancient Greeks stories. What are those? Yeah, so of course Ray Harryhausen was the great figure in Hollywood in the late 20th century, uh, the second half of the 20th century, um, working with clay animation. And I think for a 21st century audience, this uh, yeah, where we have CGI and all sorts of other visual effects available, um, we perhaps don't appreciate just how difficult it was for filmmakers in those earlier decades to create special effects. So what he did um, in a number of his movies, um, Sinbad the Sailor being another one, but in particular Jason and the Argonauts, which was released in 1963, was to use clay stop gap, uh, uh, stop motion um, uh, recreations of some of the monsters from some of the stories. Wow. So this is, of course, a retelling of Jason and the Argonauts and their journey to capture the Golden Fleece. Um, again, what you're getting is a lot of mixing together of characters from different mythologies. So Hercules is in it as well, you know, even though he wasn't mm. an Argonaut and, and so on and so on and so on. Um, but what's great about the film is these set pieces that are absolutely astonishing. And yes, you know, it's dated special effects, but it still stands up today. So there's one particular famous scene where Jason is actually fighting um, skeletons, an army of skeletons that are coming to life again from um, the ground. And it's one of the most spectacular action sequences ever made in Hollywood history, full stop. Uh, if you see it once, you you won't forget it. Uh, now, famously, uh, Tom Hanks, who was a big, big fan of this film, but when Ray Harryhausen received an honorary Oscar shortly before he passed away, um, uh, Tom Hanks gives this great quote where he says, you know, if you were first, yes, there's 
Casablanca and there's Citizen Kane. But if you were 13 in 1963, there was only one greatest film ever made, and that was Jason and the Argonauts. And it's an incredible film. So, yeah, uh, directed by uh, Don Chaffrey, um, starring Todd Armstrong um, as Jason, who, again, uh, as we'll see when we get to the Hercules movies, casting a lot of people on their looks rather than their acting ability. So he's actually dubbed in the film. Um, but you, know, you don't really notice it because there's some really good actors surrounding it. It's a great film. Um, now, one of my correspondents, Alan, uh, has watched Agora and says it was deeply moving. Yeah, so, it uh, is. Yeah, yeah thanks it's, very it's much, beautiful, uh, beautiful Alan. Film. I want to hear from any of you who were 13 in 1963 and if you thought Jason and the Argonauts was the greatest film ever made. Okay, Hercules, there have been a lot of, a lot, a lot of films about Hercules, <laughs> right? Yes, yeah, so this is where we get to the sword and sandal films or the peplum films. So what is a peplum film? What does well, that mean? It's, well, basically it's, it's a, a muscle-bound hero wearing as little clothing as possible. Oh, okay. So this works on a number of different levels in terms of reaching an audience. They're made on the cheap, predominantly in Italy, and so they're parallel to the spaghetti western. Okay? And there's a, a, often crossover between them. So Sergio Leone, the great filmmaker of the spaghetti western era who'd make all those movies with Clint Eastwood, for example, also made a film called The Colossus of Rhodes in 1961. So there's a couple of Italian filmmakers that had a foot in both camps. Ernie Morricone would make create soundtracks for both of them and so on. They're cheap to make. They're great B-movies. They're perfect for teenage boys in the 1950s and 1960s. But there's also a massive homoerotic undertone. So there's a cult audience that could be built around them as well. So the first one is uh, a movie called Hercules, released in 1958, and it starred Steve Reeves, who had previously been Mr. Universe. And he, um, interestingly, unlike a lot of the other actors who go on to play Hercules, he actually had some acting training and had been in movies beforehand. But the story is that an Italian filmmaker called Pietro Franceschi had this idea of yeah, you know, making a movie about Hercules, getting a bodybuilder in to play the hero and kind of casting a whole lot of Italian actors, pumping it out cheap and then selling it on to Hollywood. And the story was that his daughter had seen Steve Reeves, former bodybuilder, in a Hollywood film and said, this is the man, mm-hmm. get him. And so he was offered the role, a plane ticket to Italy. Uh, Reeves thinks it's a joke, uh, I think doesn't... Uh, doesn't even get on the first flight or something like that. He's offered again, flies across... Paid $10,000 US, not a great deal of money. Um, and it's a massive hit. It's a B film. Everyone loves it. They make a, a follow-up uh, in uh, 1959 called Hercules Unchained, and then it just releases the floodgates. So throughout the late 50s and early 1960s, there's about 30 or 40 films in total. Uh, Professor Alistair Blanchard at the University of Queensland has done a lot of work on these movies, actually, and, and published a book a few years ago called Hercules. But um, what you're getting is a whole range, basically a period over, of, of about a decade where if you won Mr. Universe or an international bodybuilding competition, you'd get a prize and then you'd get a film contract to fly to Italy. Uh, Alan Steele, Rock Stevens, Reg Parks, who wasn't too bad. Most of these men can't act, though. Mm. They're there for their muscles. And, um, you know, so, a, a number of them have tried to adhere to the the actual mythological story of Hercules and his labours, but many of them are completely off the plot. Um, and by the end of it, Hercules is going to the moon and fighting... <laughs> 
aliens, um, often taking on uh, Amazons as well. So then you've got you know a little bit of girl power, but a very 1950s yeah. idea of girl power. Um, really interesting phenomena. Now, and then there are some um, that, that I've, I've, I've never heard of them before, but I found quite entertaining when I went to have a listen. So there's an Australian comedy send-up called Hercules Returns, and I'm just going to play the tri- play the trailer of this. This is the story of one man's dream. A dream to make movie going like it was in the old days. But on opening night, disaster struck. The film, it's an Italian film. It's an Italian! We'll dub it. Yes. We'll dub it. We'll do the voices. So he met the mighty challenge like a hero of old. Father, I am but mere mortal. I am nothing but the toe jam from between your mighty feet. <laughs> Daring like Hercules to endure any labor. That's one of the dumbest things I've seen anyone do. Perform any task. Okay, I'll give him a fight, but first I'll get rid of this cardboard t-shirt. Bear any burden that heaven might bring. Not true that all bodybuilders have got little peepees, okay? Hercules, a man who took pride in his appearance. Samson, here already? God, he can't see me like this. I haven't got enough baby oil on my muscles. A man who knew no fear. Homosexual? What? A man with a song in his heart. Oh, yes, I'm a great. Witness feats of muscular control never before seen on the big screen. I'll fight you on one condition, that you lower your nipple. Hercules Returns, an epic story of heroism, adventure, and men with surprisingly well-developed bodies. Apparently that's an Australian cult classic. It is. Yeah, now, this I've is, never heard of it. It's a brilliant movie. I'm so pleased yeah. you found this. Um, and it's just been re-released on DVD, oh, I believe, as well, too, only um, relatively recently. Um, it's actually a comedy group uh, who were working in the late 1980s called Double Take. They used to do cinematic pop-ups where they would play old movies and just dub them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the movie plot is basically that concept with the device of a of, of a, a cinema owner wanting them to fail um, and so providing only one film, which was uh, an Italian film from 1964. Um, Samson and His Mighty Challenge was the English title of it, and it was Hercules versus Samson. So, again, you know, mixing of uh, yeah, d- different yes. cultural traditions <laughs> here. Um, Frank Fring provides the voice of Zeus, um, but, you know, it's uh, Bruce Spence and Mary Costa. It's a great film. A lot of fun. And another one I had not come across, but this gave me some laughs when I looked at the clip too, was uh, Hercules in New York with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yes. Let's have a listen to some of this. Put that discus down. You have no business out here. Those men do not throw it far enough. You don't say. I do say. What is it, Helen? That man with the discus. The coach seems to be arguing with him. Well, these boys are record holders. Then they should be better. I suppose you believe that you're better. I once showed them in the Olympics in Greece how to do it. They profited by my instruction. You uh, showed us in the Greek Olympics, huh? What year was that? That was in the year when... Hey, coach, let him show us, coach. Maybe there is something we could learn. Well, it's always possible. All right. Go ahead, show us. Thank you. 
And of course, he throws the discus a very, very long way mm. because he's Hercules yes. in New York. And he rides a chariot around Central Park in one of the scenes <laughs> as well. Um, that was uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was 22, um, appearing as Andrew uh, as Arnie Strong uh, initially. Um, and uh, it was the year between him winning his first and second bodybuild championship. They filmed it in 1969. Again, cult classic. It's a terrible film. Absolutely terrible film. He's actually dubbed in the original version of it, so I'm I'm impressed you managed to find the uh, the version without the mm. dubbing. Um, but uh, yes, by um, by that film alone, Schwarzenegger should never have had a Hollywood career. <laughs> so <laughs> how he managed to come back again in the eighties is a is a, a separate story. But um, yeah, uh, uh, and again, probably the last in that tradition in the nineteen eighties. Uh, Lou Ferrigno, um, who would also be the Incredible Hulk, did a couple mm-hmm. of Hercules films. But it's that idea of sort of people being cast based on their body type rather yeah. than. Rather yeah. than acting talent. Now, a few more have come through on the SMS. Now, someone says that Hercules Returns grossed $318,788 at the box office. Wow. It's not that much. It's not no, that but it's Australian cinema. Australian, so yeah. that's many, it wasn't, it was It was not in 93. Well, that's, that's true. Yeah, it's true. 30 years ago. It's not, not terrible then. Um, another texter says, I can't ring, but um, there's a... a I think it's a book uh, by George Rivera Herons. It's a loose adaptation on the Odyssey. My daughter listens to it all the time. Mm. That's all I know. (laughs) (laughs) Not on screen, Suzanne Vega wrote and sang a song, Calypso. That was her perspective of uh, the affair with Ulysses. Glenn says the original 300 Spartans from 1962 with Richard Egan is a faithful favourite. The latter remake, not so much. Daniel and Aubrey, and I'm not sure if this is the name of a film, Daniel. Uh, remember when I used to call Hercules Percules? So, okay, no, I never quite sure. Um, oh, go. that's a line from that's possibly a line from Hercules Returns, actually. Ah, uh, so hang on, is Heracles the Greek and Hercules the Roman? Yes, yeah, so same same character, um, and of course, mythologically, he has to undertake. Ten labors. He's a demigod. He's a, 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 a son of Zeus, but also of a mortal woman. So, in order to be accepted onto Mount Olympus, and particularly by Hera, who's rather jealous of, yeah, she's got it in for him. She's got it out for, in for him, and so does Ares, the god of war. So he has to complete these ten impossible I think it's tasks. Twelve. Oh, twelve. Sorry, you're right. Sorry. The I've, I've read that labors. book yes. with my kids a million times. So many times. <laughs> but then there's also other versions that you know are not suitable for a cinematic adaptation and, you know, the way that he, he kills his family. So, you know, there's there's troubling aspects of the mythology. So we kind of get this fun version of Hercules. And it's interesting in ancient Greek cultures, different generations have different Hercules. The drunken Hercules is very, very popular in the Hellenistic period. Now this is great. Jason from Paddington says, I was Chris and Jake. Then after seeing Jason and the Argonauts when I was about 10, I decided to make people call me Jason. They call me Jason to this day. I've never changed my name legally or otherwise. I just make me call, I make people call me Jason to the point where even my passport says Jason. There we have the hero's journey. Wow. (laughs) Thank you, Jason. <laughs> That's amazing. That was true dedication to Jason and the Argonauts. I think that that illustrates that story. Now, we in, we ended up, uh, too, we've got some series that uh, come along. Uh, we've got the 1998 Disney cartoon uh, about Hercules as well. Yes. 
And then uh, we move into Hercules and the Xena TV series of the 1990s. And so Xena, she was a, ended up having a spin-off, didn't she? That's right, yeah. So uh, Hercules, The Legendary Journey and Xena, Warrior Princess, both filmed very cheaply in New Zealand at the time, largely New Zealand casting, including Lucy Lawless, who would play Xena. Um, Kevin Zorbo uh, was cast as Hercules um, and been a, a little bit more controversial in recent years for his political um, uh, uh, involvement rather than acting. But uh, between 1995 and 1999 for Hercules, and Xena went for a number of years later, you have this really interesting telling of, again, they're going on a journey, both of them. Remember, Xena's not a true character from Mm. Greek mythology. She's based on the Greek word xenos, uh, where we get xenophobia from, the idea of the stranger. So she was initially a, a bit part in uh, season one of, of Hercules, the legendary journey and was such a popular character that the spinoff was created. And actually her, her cultural legacy has probably been greater because of course she went on in the late nineties to become a, as a character, a, um, a, a, a lesbian um, icon. Um, and Lucy Lawless's performance was flawless in many ways, but uh, with both TV series, you're getting mixtures of, you know, suddenly randomly an Egyptian god or a medieval figure will pop up for no reason. Um, so they're, they're playing with the form and having a bit of fun with it um, in a very 90s kind of way. Again, it'd be interesting to see if you could remake them on that style today, but very tongue-in-cheek. We've been down this road before. The last time you almost cost me a friendship. This time, it'll cost you a life. <laughs> If I can bring back the head of Hercules, I can get back my army. So you can murder more women and children? That was not my idea. I never murdered women and children. You shouldn't be fighting each other. Darfus is the enemy. You should be on the same side fighting him. On second thought, maybe you should work it out between you. Yeah, so that's Hercules and Xena facing off uh, in the series of the 90s. So of all the ones we've talked about tonight, Craig, it was Agora you you would recommend. I think as as a piece of film, Agora is an extraordinary movie and a wonderful performance by Rachel Weiss. I think Jason and the Argonauts if you want a fun if you want a fun Saturday night um, and a bit of a laugh, it's a good one. Okay. okay, so Epic the Musical, which someone mentioned, is written, someone else says, by this George Rivera Herons that somebody else ah. mentioned. <laughs> okay, <laughs> it's all coming together. Um, and someone says great musical versions of Greek mythology include the opera Orpheus and the Underworld yes. and the musical Hades Town. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, ancient Greece is always with us, really. I mean, there's democracy for starters. But, I mean, some, the, the Nike... Nike logo and the modern Olympic Games. Yeah, look, we're a couple of months away from a modern Olympic Games. The legacy of ancient Greece is with us all the time. The yeah, the 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 Nike logo, uh, Nike logo is an interesting one because it's actually the Nike tick is the winged um, depiction of the winged helmet from Hermes, the the god, the messenger god, who was you know fast, graceful, swift. And can't sue for breach of copyright, so... Yeah. <laughs> Hence, handbags. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, Hercules Returns is hilarious, says Victoria. If you haven't seen it, you need to. 
You'd agree? I would. Yeah. A lovely cameo from David and Margaret too, from memory. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, that definitely sounds worth watching. Well, you've uh, talked us through a lot of the representations of ancient Greece on screen. We might get you back to do Rome next time. Looking there's forward to There's a it. lot in Rome. We might need two for Rome, to we be might, honest. I mean, there's Ben-Hur, there's Spartacus. There's yeah, definitely a lot doing there. Thank you so much for coming in again, Craig. Thank you, Susan. Uh, Dr. Craig Barker is the Head of Public Engagement at the Chowchak Wing Museum that's at the University of Sydney. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife.